Welcome to Crime Biscuit. I'm your host, Paulette. Today's episode is called Free Spirit and the Devil. It's the story of Camelia Randall. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to take a minute and just apologize for there being two weeks without an episode. One reason is because there was a death in the family. The other reason is I did a lot of soul searching because I came to a moment when I wasn't sure that I wanted to continue doing this. The reason why, in case you're wondering, and even if you're not, is I listen to a lot of podcasts and I've noticed that a lot of them, especially the really big ones, spend a lot of time telling people how they should think um, mocking other people's political views. And that really bothers me. I feel like this is a true crime podcast and it's not my job to preach at you about how you should feel about what's going on in the world and certainly not to talk politics. If I wanted to talk politics, I'd have a politics show and not a true crime podcast. So after thinking about it long and hard, I decided I'm going to keep going and I'm going to do true crime and I'm not going to do anything else. If people want to hear my political views or my views on how the world is, then this is not the place because that's not what I'm interested in talking about. So rant over, let's dive in. On October 30th, 1994, the body of 18-year-old Camelia Randall was found near Crescent City, California in a redwood forest. She'd been beaten, stabbed multiple times, sexually assaulted, and strangled. All of this is bad enough, but it wasn't all that had been done to her. Camelia was a petite young woman, standing barely five feet tall and weighing in at only 125 pounds. She had this striking red hair, and by all accounts, she was a free spirit. She wanted to hitchhike from Oregon to Guerinville, California. This idea did not sit well with her Aunt Wendy Whiteman, who was almost like a mother to Camelia. Aunt Wendy owned a flower shop in Ashland, Oregon. I can think of a ton of reasons not to hitchhike, especially alone, but in this case, the aunt, Wendy said Camelia as a gentle soul who placed trust in almost everyone. It also bothered the aunt because Camelia often hitchhiked, but she usually did so with other people. Despite being unhappy about her niece striking out alone, Wendy gave her some money so she would be able to get food on the trip. When she left her aunt on the afternoon of October 26, 1994, she was dressed in her typical hippie-style clothing, face and hair natural. She had a backpack that held her clothes, a journal, and a sleeping bag. She wrote in the journal daily, and sometimes she would also write poetry. When this journal is found later, the entry for the 27th, the day after she left her aunt's flower shop, it says this, and I'm just hitting the highlights. It's eight o'clock now. The third car that picked me up was two old men, Chris Collins and Ernie. They took me to Brookings to Chris's house. They are good men. I got a shower and then a ride to Crescent City. I'll sleep on the ocean tonight. I tried calling aunt. No one's home. Tomorrow is mom's birthday. Happy birthday, mom. Feel sort of sad. Later that evening, Camelia finally got a hold of her aunt and told her she'd made it to Crescent City. 
She was calling from a Denny's restaurant and let her aunt know she'd be sleeping on the beach that night and it might be a few days before she called again. The very next day, October 27th, around 2.30 in the afternoon, Stephen Gresham and Harold Wren were taking a walk along Howland Hill near a remote area of forest, just outside of the Crescent City. They were taking photos when they spotted a yellow sneaker, sleeping bag, and a blue scarf about 20 to 30 feet down the side of the road. Harold threw a rock at the sleeping bag, and it made a thud, like something was inside of it. They didn't call authorities, though, at least not then. It was a week later they heard a body had been found in that general area. That's when they called the sheriff's department. The body had been found by a hiker on October 30th. Camelia was inside of the green sleeping bag, curled up in the fetal position. Her backpack and her clothes were nearby, as well as her shoes. There was a rope tied around her neck and her knees, but they appeared to have been placed there as a way to maybe carry her to the dump site. Her face, arms, and back were covered in scratches, cuts, and bruises. There was flesh missing from her left arm and hand. Her forehead was indented and the bruising around her neck was consistent with a ligature. Her left nipple was cut and a deep wound was found in her left armpit. All of the cuts to her body were consistent with a knife that had a double edge and those wounds matched up with holes found in the shirt she'd been wearing. The soles of her feet were really dirty, making it obvious that she'd been walking around barefoot prior to being murdered. Sergeant Jean McManus with the Dunnort County Sheriff's Department was one of the first people to arrive at the crime scene. He arrives at Jedediah Smith State Park and observes the body down in a ravine. He sees what appears to be some kind of blanket and a head of bright red hair. There's a lot of exposed tissue and it has cuts on it. As he's looking at her, he thinks, that could be my daughter. And he makes a promise to her right then and there that he will find who did this to her. Sergeant McManus had previously received specialized training in sexual assault and sexually oriented homicides. He stated that the blunt force trauma to the left side of Camellia's face would have been caused by multiple punches. He further concluded that those punches would have come from a right-handed person. He also believed that the sharp-edged wounds on her left hip and abdomen, as well as the ones at the base of her neck and on her right shoulder, were controlled pokes with the aim of inflicting pain and probably terror on Camellia. He also concluded the wounds to her face, particularly around the eye, would have been solely to induce terror and fear. There was dirt under Camellia's fingernails, and there was also an injury on her knuckle. So these things would have been consistent with, with what McManus would expect to find in a victim that had been fighting for their life. He also noted the dirt on her feet, so it was obvious to him that she hadn't been inside somewhere when she'd been attacked. His final conclusion was that she'd been attacked, raped, tortured, strangled to death, and then mutilated. McManus, when he first saw the body and really got a look at it, he initially thought that animals had been at her. This was mostly because of the missing flesh from her left arm, which had been almost completely stripped of flesh. But after studying the wounds further, He's trying to narrow it down, and he pretty much rules out bear. He's had experience with bodies that a bear has been at. A bear is ferocious in their feeding habits and would have eaten more flesh and even disarticulated limbs and drugged them off. He also would have expected to find feeding evidence on the softer tissue areas like Camellia's face, neck, and throat. 
the sharp force wounds, if they'd been caused by a bear, would have had groupings or patterns of three or four, which would have come from the claws. So McManus calls for backup, and Detective Bill Stevens is who shows up. He's also sure that this is a dump site and not where she's been killed. The belongings that had been dumped with her, the backpack and the sleeping bag, they find um, ID. So they now know it is Camelia Randall. They're able to track down her family in Longview, Washington, which is where her mother, Marjorie Reynolds, lives. In an interview that Marjorie did for Cold Case Files, she says that when these two policemen knock on her door, she answers it, and then she just keeps saying and repeating, please don't tell me my daughter's dead. She goes on to say that her daughter was always a free spirit. That kind of helps us understand why she was hitchhiking and just enjoying being out in the world, doing her own thing. The police speak to Camelia's aunt, who gives them a starting point that they can work from. So they have the journal, which I mentioned earlier, so they can go talk to the two men that she had named when she'd gotten a ride. They immediately deny any wrongdoing, and they tell police whatever it is that they know. It doesn't take the police very long at all to alibi them out and remove them as suspects. At this point, McManus admits they have little to nothing to go on. Camelia was just someone passing through with no connection to any particular person or place in the town. And this lack of connection means the leads dry up and the case goes cold. On October 31st, Dr. Kenley Falconer, a forensic pathologist, performed the autopsy. And it revealed that she had not been dead for too many days. The final cause of death was strangulation. The ligature mark went almost all the way around her neck, and it appeared that it had been caused by a belt and not the rope that had been found around her neck when the body was discovered. Camelia had both blunt force and sharp force injuries to the face and head. He determined that these occurred while she was still alive. The other injuries that she sustained while she was still alive were the bruises on her forehead, around her eyes and mouth, and on her head. These all indicated she had been beaten pretty severely. Some to most of the stab wounds were superficial. These were on her cheek and near her eyes. There was a deeper wound in her neck. And she did have a clustered group of stab wounds on the right side of her torso, but it couldn't be determined if she were dead or alive when those occurred. The pathologist kind of called them poking motions, little pokes. It didn't appear the purpose of the stabbings was to kill. They appeared, per the pathologist, as, quote, to be done for the purpose of tormenting or causing pain or showing control or just sadistic reasons, end quote. It's also possible they were done just to see if she was alive. Camelia's left breast was almost totally removed and the nipple had either been cut or torn. She had a gaping wound on the left side of her chest and an injury to her rib cage. This was consistent with some kind of heavy instrument like a pipe or a hammer, maybe a hatchet. They found that her heart and left lung were missing and there was evidence that they had been removed with a knife maybe a pocket knife. Dr. Falconer made a point to look closely for any evidence that some of these injuries had been caused by animals. Nothing of the kind was found. A rape kit was also performed. The chief medical examiner for the city and county of San Francisco, Dr. Boyd Stevens, consulted on the case. He reviewed the evidence and consulted with Dr. Falconer. 
He was in agreement that the cause of death was ligature strangulation and also found it likely that the ligature was a belt. He also agreed that the injuries she'd sustained around the head and face had happened while she was alive. Dr. Stevens made note of sharp force injuries on her lower left abdomen that worked their way around to the small of her back as well as on her right arm. Dr. Stevens was of the opinion that the various sharp force injuries, including the organ removal, were inconsistent with what they'd expect to see if animals had gotten to the body. An animal would have left tear marks, and the wounds they saw were created by a blade of some kind and not teeth of any kind of wildlife. So now we have two doctors, plus Sergeant McManus, who've all come to the same conclusion. No animal did this. Well, an animal did do this, just not a four-legged one. Further evidence was analyzed. There was seminal fluid in both the oral and vaginal swabs taken from Camellia's body. There wasn't any found in her pants, though, which means that she had never been upright again after the rape occurred. It was estimated that the sperm had been deposited there 12 hours prior to her death. Criminalist Kay Beltner who was analyzing this evidence, believed the oral sex portion happened just before, or even as, Camellia was dying. She also concluded the evidence was not consistent with a consensual act, but was consistent with being raped and tortured. So here we are with all this evidence, and we have Camellia's death. But the big question, who did this horrific thing? Who should be held accountable for this crime? They have this genetic material that they've gathered. It is put into the database, and then the years tick by. For seven years, McManus keeps looking at Camellia's file that's stored in the cold case storage area of the Del Norte County Sheriff's Office. Finally, in 2001, they get a hit through CODIS on the DNA. It points to one Robert Allen Wigley Jr., and according to Jeanette Wallen, the unique genetic code meant the chances were one- in 69 billion, that the fluids could have come from anyone other than Robert Wigley. Who is Robert Wigley? Well, Wigley is a convicted sex offender who lives in Oregon. The police don't want him to know they are trying to connect him to the brutal murder of the 18-year-old girl in California, so instead, they pick him up on probation violations so that they can question him. This is November 6th of 2001. There is footage of the initial interview on that episode of Cold Case Files, and it shows him acting sort of friendly and nonchalant at the beginning. McManus is conducting this interview, and he asks him if Wigley knows the redheaded girl. Did he ever meet her? If you watch any kind of true crime shows, you know that often the interviewer will try to get a suspect to deny they know someone. Then they can spring it on them that they have that person's DNA on a murder victim. Of course, if they claim they did have contact with the person, then the police have to work a little harder to explain the presence of the DNA. In this instance, though, Wigley denies ever having met Camellia. So McManus has the pleasure of telling him that they have Wigley's DNA on the murdered girl. Wigley still denies and still remains fairly calm. McManus wants to shake him up a bit So he slides a crime scene photo across the table towards Wigley, who looks at it for a second and then flings himself backwards in the chair, acting all mortified and says, why are you showing me shit like that? It's a pretty sad attempt at acting, 
in my humble opinion. McManus basically says, I know you did this and I am going to get you for it and ends the interview and escorts him out of the room. So now that we're at this point, it's imperative for the authorities to nail down a timeline for Wiggly's movements. McManus goes to speak with Wiggly's ex-wife, Marie. He'd still been married to her at the time of Camelia's murder. So when McManus tells her why he wants to speak to her, the reaction that comes from her is one of shock and fear. She is asked, point blank, if she thinks her ex-husband is capable of what they're accusing him of. And to that, she says, oh yeah, no doubt in my mind. She's also afraid to talk to the police because even though she hasn't seen her ex in two years, she's not so sure he won't pay her a visit if he finds out she's talking to the police. McManus assures her that she's safe, and it apparently convinces her because she does open up. So just a little warning, I've told you a few fairly graphic things about Camelia's murder, and I'm going to tell you some pretty graphic things about what Marie experienced in her marriage with Wiggly. So forewarned. During their marriage, Wiggly would hit her and push her and even choke her until she passed out. At one point, he held a gun to her head. He also sodomized his wife against her will fairly often. One particular time, Wiggly and his cousin Benny Wiggly brought a drunk woman home from a bar. Wiggly basically demanded that his wife Marie have sex with the woman. When Marie refused, Wiggly took her to a closet and choked her while brutally sodomizing her. After he told her to get cleaned up and get on the bed, he then brought the drunk woman in and forced Marie to lay there while the woman performed oral sex on her. Marie cried throughout the three to four hour ordeal. In a similar event, Wiggly got Marie's cousin Karen drunk during a drinking game. Both women are drunk, Marie and Karen, and Wiggly begins to try to convince them to have a threesome. Marie feared that Wiggly would be able to talk the incredibly inebriated Karen into it, so Marie goes to bed, hoping that will spare her. But later, Wiggly wakes her up, saying Karen wants to have a threesome. He then proceeds to bring Karen in, who is so drunk she can't walk unassisted. Marie, according to court documents on anylaw.com, on the case People v. Wiggly, Marie doesn't recall a whole lot. Remember, she is very drunk. So, but she does remember going into the bathroom. When she comes out later, Wiggly is sodomizing Karen, who's crying and saying over and over again to stop. It hurts. Wiggly doesn't stop, though. Later, Karen goes into the bathroom and Marie follows her. Karen is crying and in pain and is bleeding badly from the assault. I am telling you all of this to paint you a picture of this monster. It's not a stretch to believe he raped, tortured, and killed Camelia. He has a pattern of this kind of behavior. So anyways, after the police have spoke to Marie, Wigley is charged on November 30th with the murder of Camelia Randall. Now that he's arrested, the police need to build a case against him. That case is going to start with a timeline to connect Camelia's whereabouts to Wigley's. Camelia was last seen alive at a mini-mart less than a mile from the Super 8 where Wigley was working at the time. Based on eyewitness accounts of her movements, she would have been traveling on the road that took her right past the Super 8. So let me be honest here. 
I went down a bit of a rabbit hole reading about the months leading up to the trial and the stunts Wiggly pulled, like trying to kill himself in prison by hanging himself with a bed sheet. He plotted an escape by having an accomplice uh, hide somewhere and kill the officer that was going to escort him to the courthouse. This guy is basically a nut. And he tells about six different stories of how Camelia died to multiple inmates. We'd have to do an entire episode to cover all of it. And this piece of you-know-what doesn't deserve the effort. So I'm going to try to summarize this as best I can. Pretty early on, Wigley fires his attorney and decides to represent himself. And what this means is that Wigley now gets to see the evidence the prosecution is compiling as they compile it. This is about a year-long process, and here's the thing. Wigley has yet to give an official statement. So what he's doing is looking at the evidence and then working up a story to fit that evidence. Like I said, he told several versions of the story to other inmates, and they're all similar. The official version he ends up giving is basically this. He met Camelia, and he and his wife, Marie, had a consensual threesome. At some point, things get out of hand, and Marie strangled Camelia. There are a whole lot of other things he claimed that happened, and I really debated bringing this one up. But as we discussed in the evidence portion and the findings of her autopsy, you might be wondering how he could explain the semen in Camelia's mouth that they determined happened as she was dying. If his wife attacked Camelia, then how did that happen? In one of his many stories, he claimed his wife manipulated Camelia's dead face and head and made the oral sex happen. First of all, that is preposterous. And second of all, if he was just an unfortunate witness to his wife's brutal killing of Camelia, how would he have been able to get semen into the mouth of a dead girl? Wouldn't he be in the corner crying and scared? Anyway, the police tell Marie about his accusation, and she's horrified, but not worried, because she knows she's innocent. In fact, for several days prior to Camelia's murder, Marie had been suffering with severe stomach pains and had, in fact, been in the hospital a few times because of it. The night of the murder, she was at her parents' house and nowhere near the Super 8. Like I said earlier, the People vs. Wiggly documents are chocked full of Wiggly's escapades throughout the trial. The judge deals quite calmly with all of the ludicrous demands and complaints. Wiggly at one point brings up the fact that the police found no fiber evidence that placed Camelia at the Super 8 or in his vehicle. He also says she was alive when he dumped her and someone else must have found her and done all of those other horrific things. And that sounds plausible, right? Somehow the judge manages not to come over the bench and just throttle the life out of him. And in the end... Wiggly is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. During the sentencing, he remains motionless and stoic until the life sentence is doled out, at which point he turns his head to the left and stares at Camellia's family with dead, emotionless eyes. He gets what he deserves, I suppose. But even though we know, through the forensic evidence and the pathologist's findings, what happened to Camellia to some degree, 
Wigley never gives a true account of what he did to Camellia. I'm left wondering, due to the history he had of forcing himself on women, including his own wife, and the violent streak he had, maybe Camellia wasn't the only one. Since every time Wigley opens his mouth, a lie falls out, I'm sure we'll never know. That will wrap it up for this episode of Crime Biscuit. Hang tight for the final crumb. If you'd like to follow me, I'm Crime Biscuit on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, or you can send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review. I'd appreciate it. Here's your final crumb. This is not a very humane final crumb, but it is an honest one. I hope that Wiggly trips a dozen times a day and accidentally falls on a knife each time he does. And I hope that every time he drops the soap in the shower, he gets a surprise. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.